Okay, welcome everybody to another episode of the Data Engineering Show. Welcome, welcome. Uh, with me today, uh, Gonar Tongring from Klarna in Sweden. Hi, Gonar, how are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. Thanks for, for joining us. So, you know, for all you out there who don't know Klarna, Klarna is a super, super interesting company. Klarna is uh, in fintech from Sweden. Uh, it's actually one of the most valuable privately held fintech companies in the world. And last year, the last round of investment came from SoftBank, valued uh, the company at $45 billion. dollars. Uh, unbelievable. Uh, Klarna has been around for since more or less, I think, 2005, has shown an amazing journey. So an idea that started around just making payments online smoother and a team that uh, kept evolving and pushing throughout the years. Uh, they're rather famous in recent years for the kind of, I don't know if you've seen this, but shop now, pay later kind of experience. And throughout the years, Klarna has also evolved into being licensed as an actual bank, having its own credit card which is uh, relatively recent with uh, already more than a million uh, uh, consumers using it, I think. Uh, so really exciting and interesting uh, fintech company. Uh, Gonar, anything I missed? You know, you've been there for uh, six years. Uh, Gonar is a yeah. lead data engineer, architect and more. Uh, so maybe, you know, tell us your, uh, tell us a little bit about Klarna from sort of somebody who's been there in the last uh, six years. And then we'll dive into what you do there uh, and beyond. It's actually an, an incredibly good description, so thank you for that. Uh, but uh, just my, my personal perspective more from, from the data angle is actually that I, I remember that I walked into a building and I thought it was uh, kind of a growing startup and uh, it turned out to be a slightly larger company uh, than I thought. Um, but the scale we're at today is something very different and that's incredibly noticeable on, on data side. Uh, I remember when I joined, uh, there was this uh, like BI team uh, which consisted of a handful of people and basically handling all the different uh, data requests across the company. Uh, the scale we're at now means that we have an entire, what we call domain of uh, around 60 people doing like the similar tasks we were just uh, five people doing. So it, it's a completely different ball game, of course, with uh, with that type of volumes, uh, and uh, it, it's been a lot of growth and uh, pivoting into like new areas all the time. Uh, so it's always good fun. Amazing. And uh, so, how did uh, tell us about your roles uh, throughout the years? Yeah, I actually started with uh, like report uh, BI work, like traditional uh, working in uh, in, in uh, Cognos at the time and generating uh, the majority was actually like merchant reporting, but uh, basically anything people would want to have covered. Like I, I want to know this, I want to know that. Uh, and that was uh, not exactly what I wanted to do. So I, I was working uh, a couple of years on our Hadoop infrastructure uh, with uh, basically building uh, fairly large scale data flows uh, at the time uh, in various forms, a lot of like Hive, Hive SQL and uh, uh, us building frameworks around it. Uh, we built a tool called uh, Hive Runner as an example to, to do unit testing of, uh, of data, which is kind of cool. And then we we moved to the cloud, so that was like yeah. Then you know what you're doing for so a couple, so, couple so of no, days. So Cognos is not around anymore. No, it's not. It's not. But <laughs> um, 
But but the journey of like, hey, let's move everything to the cloud. Uh, I, I think that's when I understood uh, what what Klarna was all about, actually, because we were. Uh, it wasn't some kind of let's let's do this. It will take the time it takes. It's more like, hey, let's do this like now, fast, and like get it all done. And uh, we did that, and we yeah, we kind of pulled it off and within reasonable timelines. So that was nice. But we we shifted our entire infrastructure to uh, cloud based only, which obviously. Data is one of the parts where that becomes uh, tricky because you need to migrate a lot of, uh, you, you, I mean, you have to migrate the data in itself, but you also need to migrate your tooling. Uh, we did not go for like uh, Hadoop on cloud uh, type of setup. So we, we shifted quite a lot. So today, Clara is cloud only when it comes to the data stack. Yes. So when, how long, when was the final uh, switch off for, for an on-prem? We, you know, we've I've been talking to companies <laughs> yeah. throughout the years that the, the length of time it takes to complete it is between years to indefinitely. So, you know, re just reaching the state where it's completely off uh, is an achievement in its own sometime. So how long ago was that? I, I don't remember 100%, but I think it was probably like three years ago or something like that. But uh, the nice thing was actually that we uh, we were quite happy with our work because uh, we were out, uh, we were not the last ones out. So that meant that someone else was running something on on, on some uh, uh, service somewhere. And uh, but like when it, we actually managed to to pull the plug, there was obviously like an announcement video where someone was going to the computer hall and like unplugging the final computer that we had in, in Stockholm. And uh, then uh, we were into a new era, really. That's fine. That, that's fun. That's fun. So many people who won't be able to ever experience that, you know, people nowadays born in the cloud. So, you know, you should, you should, you deserve like a, you know, a medal for being there when, when on-prem was unplugged for, for Klarna. We are a fairly modern company, but I still think like uh, kids these days don't understand like why, why, why would you have like this metal thing under your desk? Like, oh, it's to keep your, like the computer and the computer was actually the server, <laughs> which was actually giving people what they needed. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's a different, uh, it's a different area, but it's been, it's been kind of a fast transition in the industry, I think as well, like uh, the debate of like cloud or not is uh, fairly dead to me. The debate is definitely over, I think, uh, even though there's a lot of on-prem activity still around, uh, more than we typically think. Every time there's a survey comes out and it turns out, you know, there's so much workload still happening on-prem. Um, some portions of the industry are just much slower to move than we sort of on the more advanced side of sort of data and tech tend to realize. Because we, you know, we live in this uh, modern data stack world and, and sometimes we, uh, you know, we forget that we're just a, a segment that there's so much workload out there on-prem. But yeah, it's uh, it's all coming to the cloud for sure. Um, Tell me, so so Clara is you know over six thousand uh, people big worldwide, according to you know what I see on LinkedIn more or less. But how how many people are spread across the different data teams? So how many people deal with data, and how are the variety of teams structured at, at Clara? If you could walk us through that. Yeah, so I, I think there are two different stories to tell. Like one would be like uh, our uh, we work in the data platform in Cormans domain, where I work as a domain architect, but. Uh, our structure internally is basically that we have um, uh, roughly half of our domain of around 60 people is uh, infrastructure, people building the platform. So 
providing tooling for other people to do data processing, in a sense, uh, building frameworks and uh, making sure the databases are running, making sure that we have uh, the correct setups of uh, access to, to data on, uh, uh, on, on blob storage and building a data catalog as, as we have as well. And the other half is doing what we call uh, core models, uh, basically being end-to-end uh, -end BI teams. Uh, so they work with more like central uh, central data that would be not possible to own within a specific domain of the company. Uh, but that's the next step. Like the, a lot of uh, our data teams are actually either something that is working like in the finance department with data, and it might even be like a team that is explicitly working only with data. Uh, and we have, yeah, teams doing big, uh, big data processing in uh, various spaces. Everything from risk positioning to um, to fraud detection to uh, anomaly detection with like problems that can occur with our merchants. So I, I see more and more of this like, hey, we need to spin up a data team for for something somewhere in the organization, uh, and uh, less and less of like, hey, can you please do this centrally at the company because we need this to be done from you. Uh, and that's very much in line with how we are trying to, to build the company that we want to have. We want to have like the domain knowledge close to uh, what is actually going on. And I think for data, that's uh, in particular extremely important because uh, I see a lot of cases where we have this, uh, someone is being asked to do something, they don't really know why. Uh, and they are deemed to be like the data people who, who know exactly how to handle data. But how to handle data will be very much a product of what the data actually like why is this data generated this way like what does this field mean uh, all of these things are impossible to know if you're working in some kind of decoupled function uh, centrally at the company you might be extremely good at sparse indexing or, or something really cool for for uh, performance uh, tuning but it, it doesn't really help if you don't know uh, what you're doing. So sense. you guys are looking into sort of a, a data me data mesh kind of uh, implementation? Yeah, I, I would say so. We, we've looked a bit at data mesh, but the thing for us with data mesh is actually, it wasn't something that came like from the sky that like, hey, let's do data mesh. It was more, we looked at what we were doing and then we looked at data mesh and we realized that hmm, this is very close to what we're actually doing. Uh, and we can learn some things, we can tie some things into the terminology. Uh, but I mean, for me, the key takeaway with data mesh is really the ownership aspect. Like I, I want to have strong ownership. So saying, you know, it's not about us picking up uh, a data mesh, you know, guide and implementing it by the book, if the book even uh, exists. And, you know, the data <laughs> mesh in itself at, at the end of the day, talks to something that in the industry has always gone back and forth of so centralization versus decentralization in essence. Uh, and you're saying you're leaning now towards decentralization and domain ownership uh, much more uh, at this stage where Clara is, which makes more sense for you guys, right? Yeah, but I, but I think we've always been uh, a bit towards that angle, but I don't think we've had the vocabulary for it. But but what what you're saying is like there is a data mesh book now, and uh, I haven't read all of it. I, I will read it at some point, and I think it's good inspiration. But I also think it's kind of unclear exactly how you would implement it. And I see a lot of uh, uh, flame wars of like is this actual data mesh or not? And then I just realize that. That's not what I want to discuss. I want to discuss like what is the thing that drives our company forward in a good way. And uh, I think ownership and like how to actually set the boundaries uh, 
those type of discussions are are needed. Uh, but I think data mesh itself doesn't really give the answers. It just gives you a framework of how to talk about it. In a yeah, sense, I, and, I, uh, I completely agree. It's a uh, it's an a, a, it's a framework, uh, and and it looks different in every company because you know it depends on people as well and processes and on the details of the organization. It's like to some extent, you know, I feel like like being agile. How do you, how are how do you become agile? You know, there was this decade where everybody was talking about becoming agile in in software. There's no one way of becoming agile. There's many ways to implement it. Changes from from company to company. Um, but yeah, but absolutely makes sense. But but about what about data engineering though? So you know, there's BI, there's data engineering. How are they split? And isn't data engineering more centralized compared to the BI teams, or is that also spread across the different domains? Yeah, so I think there's um, uh, two answers. Like one thing is like terminology matters, and I, I think we've been discussing if we should uh, uh, release the title like analytics engineer or similar, uh, because we the, the people we have who are working with uh, uh, what a lot of people would, would call BI would potentially be labeled as data engineers, and that could be like a wide scale. From uh, yeah, you have everything from from someone working with. Uh, building automation of pipelines and someone actually like implementing uh, the, the use cases. So I, I think there's a space uh, there where uh, titles could, could make a difference. But I also think the, uh, the type of data warehousing work uh, or, or whatever you would label it uh, that we're doing might also be different in the sense that it, you kind of fast fall into the scale of things. So, so you don't really have... Maybe you're writing SQL all day, but you're still like, if you don't know how to perform a team SQL, then you will have problems. Like it, it's, uh, I, I think it's it's a title question in that sense. But but I agree. Like the the things we're doing that I would label as uh, data engineering uh, and not analytical engineering are more centralized. And uh, the, if I take the clear example of like building and implementing and uh, adopting frameworks for for making sure that we can build analytical pipelines, uh, that that's something that we consider to be something we should centralize and offer as like standardized component. If you talk about data mesh again, like I, I think of this as building like the sidecars that you need to to run your analytics products in the company and. Uh, for us, it's really it makes sense to centralize. It makes sense to uh, standardize uh, because you get so much things uh, out of the box. And the way we work is really, if you want to build your own thing, like go ahead. But the, but if you if you want to integrate with the ten different tools we have available, if you want to be compliant, then it's probably a whole lot easier if you're using the framework that we already have at hand. But it's it's a give and take. Like if you have a super specific use case, uh, yeah, uh, you can always build what what you need for that, basically. So for um, so you're saying though everything that comes everything above data pipelines to some extent, you prefer an analytics engineer, meaning somebody that can do full stack data essentially, sort of a mix of data engineering and analytics. Uh, and I think in general that's a trend we see in the market. Uh, like the term analytic engineering, analytics engineering is sort of half picked up, but people are starting to like it. But I actually look at it more of a, I like to call it full stack data developer or something like that. It's a kind of a combination of, of meshing BI and data engineering together because, you know, you can't do much today if you're not able to go further down, you know, the stack uh, and, and, you know, roll up your sleeves and, and do some kind of data engineering to some extent. Uh, and I think more and more data professionals are finding that out. 
And that mixture of, of bridging the two is definitely picking up. Interesting to, to hear that you are going about that at the Klarna. But are, do you guys already use the title analytics engineer or, or, or not really yet? Uh, no, no, no. We, we're discussing it. But I mean, to, to comment on like the full stack, I, I think of it very much as like data being a field. Actually, it's not unique to data, but I think in general, I, I think it's more and more important nowadays to be a bit T-shaped in actually having one, one technology or something that you're good at and then having something else to combine it with. And that might be that you have like, uh, maybe you're great at building analytical pipelines and you're good at the domain knowledge of finance or something. Or it might be that you have like DevOps uh, capabilities that can help with other things. And I, I think it's, uh, I agree that like a wider stack is, uh, is a strength that you need to showcase. Uh, I, I think it's incredibly hard for everyone to have enough to to fill up like the entire scale so so that from that perspective i'm sometimes thinking like hey it doesn't matter what title you have because uh i i will still have to like probe and understand what what you're actually what you're actually doing i think that's particularly i realized just being an architect for a while uh, because when you talk to other architects it's just such a scale of everything from like I, I, I don't know any details to, I know all the details to like, I draw houses, like literally, of course, but um, I, I had that confusion with some neighbor that they thought I was drawing houses and couldn't like help them. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I I just asked, do you have a database? Uh, then maybe I can help. Um, but I, I, I do think that like actually having this, like what are my core things within the, the trait, uh, like what would be, my two, three things to 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 pick up uh, on like uh, some kind of uh, strengths. That that's how I view uh, profiles in general. And I think uh, uh, I'm I'm more inclined to want to hire someone who's really good at like two different things as opposed to someone who's more like jack of all trades uh, type of uh, trades type of person. So yeah, but that's where I, I might post <laughs> full stack, uh, but I, I do hear what you're saying. Got it. Um, so uh, tell me, walk us through the current data stack. So now everything is in the cloud. How does the data stack at Cloudera look like? So we we have what we call uh, uh, data lakehouse, and we 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 thought we branded the term and uh, printed hats and things, but then it turned out that I think someone else used the uh, same term before us, but we were happily unaware and just uh, thought we had invented something new. Um, but in essence, we're running an AWS uh, analytic, uh, analytic stack. So we, we're quite heavy uh, users of... Uh, By the way, you guys should make some noise about it. Go online and you know shout from the roofs. Hey, we, we coined the term uh, data lakehouse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I've told I've told Databricks, but uh, but then I, I googled it and I actually found some some reference where I think they were using the term before us. But ne uh, never mind the facts. Let's rewrite history. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, we we did invent it, like yeah, in in that sense, um, um, we did coin the term. But but it's not it's not something super super complicated in in, in the sense that if you think of it from more of an API perspective, it's it's a platform where. Uh, you you can publish data and uh, as a producer, and then you can consume it as a consumer, and you don't really have to necessarily worry about uh, the exact uh, lo location of the data or exactly how things are working within this box. But it's a combination of basically S3 and and Redshift and EMR clusters and uh, Spark jobs running, uh, and and we manage that centrally with the configuration possibilities for for the users and are yeah iterating on. 
iterating on it uh, every day, of course. So, so in, in your transition to the cloud, Redshift was selected as sort of the, the enterprise data warehouse, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. So, and and that was uh, like if you look at where we were coming from, we were coming from uh, a fairly interesting uh, scenario where we had uh, a mix of like Postgres and uh, Hadoop, and uh, uh, the actual data warehouse was implemented in Microsoft SQL. And uh, when I say Postgres, that wasn't just one machine somewhere. Uh, it, it wasn't like 10 machines being uh, uh, having the same structure either. It was just a wild mix of a lot of different uh, uh, databases all over the place. But so we went for Redshift as being uh, like the main uh, data warehouse engine with capabilities of the uh, of, of also processing uh, like less refined data, so that's where like the lake house term uh, really uh, refers to being able to to access through one uh, logical uh, environment where you don't uh, you don't have to go to a different place because you need data from a different domain. You have, you can go to go to the lake house. You you have the lake, you have the house, and like have both order and disorder in the same place. No, it's also like Athena used uh, around it. We are uh, we are not using Athena heavily. Uh, it's one of the things we're actually looking at uh, how to uh, how to leverage uh, more potentially. But it, it's expanding in usage, I would say. But uh, we we used it extensively for uh, like when implementing it was like the, the go to tool because it, it's extremely powerful to use it uh, for interactive. Uh, Results on on fairly large data volumes actually, and uh, I was always surprised when using Athena that I would expect things to be uh, slower than they were being being used to uh, running Hive. Um, but uh, a lot of things were actually quite snappy. Uh, but then, then you run into some limitations, of course, of the tool. Like it, it doesn't. It, it's kind of built to be a, a, a happy happy path tool and. Uh, uh, Hive is very much the, the opposite, where uh, you're focused on resilience and jobs uh, just running until they actually finish. Uh, Athena is more just, whoops, uh, it didn't work. I'm not going to tell you, but uh, you don't get any results. So it's, it's a different experience, but it worked really well for uh, like when we were implementing things and needed to like quickly look at the data and, and draw some conclusions. It's just uh, been uh, very helpful. Also very good for like, Doing uh, sanity checks on, like if you have the data gap for whatever reason, you can fairly easily use it to just spot that. What else is uh, in use in the stack uh, out of Redshift? Um, so we use um, we use Airflow for orchestration, uh, and we've built our own uh, framework surrounding it. So we we have a team that is focusing on uh, building frameworks. So. Instead of actually exposing uh, Airflow to our end users, we are uh, we're leveraging uh, our own CI/CD uh, setup for it. So you're kind of forced to come into to our uh, setup where you we guarantee that you have version control for for the transformations and, and you have some support outside of uh, what you can get from Airflow. And we don't get the risk of people uh, messing up too much because you you have to go through our Jenkins to to get things running basically. One other thing that I would like to mention and that I didn't is uh, uh, our data catalog as well, which is the thing we built uh, uh, recently uh, based on uh, Data Hub from uh, LinkedIn. So we, this is one of the things we realized was a big uh, gap when when we rolled out our first iteration that we don't have. Uh, 
we, we didn't have a good way to, to just give users a way to discover all the data in a sensible manner. So we decided to, to adopt a, a solution that would uh, be flexible enough for our needs. So we, we rely on, on being able to uh, ingest metadata from, uh, from other services by pushing the data to, to uh, data hub. So that was a conscious uh, decision to go for like a flexible open source uh, project that seems to have some traction. Got it. Um, what uh, data volumes are you guys dealing with? Um, well, it's petabytes at least. Uh, so uh, the thing is, it, it kind of varies depending on, on the domain. Uh, and we have a lot of uh, very... Uh, our, our growth of data is, is quite big in, in a lot of the things that have gone live uh, later. Uh, so So it's always... Like when you talk about uh, uh, how much data we have and how much it's growing, uh, we we do have uh, um, hockey stick curves for for a lot of it, uh, and uh, yeah, that's uh, that's a challenge, of course. But we always have to. Uh, my experience has been that when you go live with something new, you tend to uh, you tend to be at the state where you're producing a bit more data than you need because you're going for a fairly naive uh, setup. So, ironically. Even though you the volumes are are growing, uh, you tend to be able to manage it uh, more over time, and it becomes more predictable because you can uh, yeah determine what is what is useful or not. Um, but the overall influx, I don't have the number. Uh, how much like moment, how much so. of all the data ends up in Redshift, like all of it, or is it you know do you do like a a year, two years? No, um, no, not all of it. So it's uh, we obviously want to uh, keep it uh, keep it sensible, uh, but but this is always a friction point because it, it's uh, it's tricky to work with uh, uh, a situation where you would need to send people to different places depending on uh, what data we need. Uh, so I, I would say we have more than we would wish for. Is is what I would say. And uh, what do you guys do for um, ETL or ELT batch processing? You run Spark or other things? Yeah, we run uh, we run Spark, so we run a combination of um, uh, and some Hive actually as well. But we we run a combination of uh, uh, Glue and uh, EMR, so that gives us the main use case for us for using AWS Glue is really that we get uh, we get access to to uh, runtime of serverless uh, Spark, and that's uh, quite convenient because that means we can. Uh, we we have an API that is is well known. We, we if we would if we would want to run things on on a different uh, compute, that would actually be potentially possible. Um, so that's like I mean SQL is is the big big thing in terms of standard languages, but uh, Spark is actually gaining some traction, and it's it's interesting to see that. Uh, I, I would predict that if Spark is being replaced with something, uh, I, I would expect them to try to keep the uh, compatibility with the API basically to be able to help people to migrate to, if possible because uh, it's becoming uh, kind of a standard for uh, running PySpark for uh, yeah for the heavy lifting. Tell us uh, about your day-to-day. So what, uh, what are you working on now? How does your job look like? Yeah, so my main focus is actually uh, uh, iterating on our architecture, so uh, basically uh, more more technical, uh, like re um, reworking the topology of, of how we we have our uh, sizing of, of different components in in the uh, data stack is is my main thing. Uh, obviously, I'm I'm doing 
various other things, but that's like the, the big thing on so, my table, I would say. So where do you want to see, you know, imagine like two years from now, where do you want to see Klarna in terms of data capabilities? I would want to uh, have uh, a zero, like my, my dream would be to, to have like zero concurrency concerns, basically. So I, I would want to have a situation where uh, every, everyone who just wants to do some data processing would would be able to uh, to do it uh, and just pay for what they need and not have to worry about at all about where the data is. I think that's a pain point that uh, uh, even though we have a fairly uh, consistent environment, there's still a situation where uh, you, you might be sent to a specific place because of having specific data needs. I would want to like break that down entirely and just uh, let people choose uh, the capacity they want and uh, ideally the tool they want but I think that's a bit utopian like I, I don't think uh, it's you, you won't be able to like offer everything but at least like do you want SQL or or like spark uh, like that type of decisions and have frameworks that just support you to do uh, the work you need that's uh, yeah what I would how want. is uh, you know so with the data organization that's so big how do you guys even go about making these decisions? Like, you know, if making decisions that would affect the long run. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about sort of the the culture of decision making around data at, at Klarna? Yeah, I, I mean, historically, it's been a bit unclear. But with uh, what we're doing now is basically going full blown with the RFCs and uh, ADR processes for for everything. So to be to, to make sure that people have an opportunity to, to raise their voices about the different decisions. But uh, like typically, uh, typically these things also take some time. So, so it is a process of uh, like, hey, we're doing this. So like I, maybe I would propose an, an ADR for it and, and then I would get some pushback and, and then and we would move forward with it. But, but yeah, it, it's becoming more and more formalized. And I think that's uh, like some people love that, some people hate that. But uh, it becomes a necessity when you're when you're growing. That uh, yeah, you just realize other people have solved this problem uh, of uh, having growth, and it it is like some kind of administration that is needed. You, you can no longer like just tell people as the coffee machine, yeah. like, hey, <laughs> we're gonna make a change. And then it's like, oh, but like I'm in the Toronto office, like, oh, what, what, no, like I didn't hear what you said at the coffee machine. So um, like clearly there's an increased need for, for formalities, yeah. The challenges of how you need to adapt the way you work for scale, we feel it also at the Firebolt where we've grown tremendously and you know, we spread worldwide and it's, yeah, you need to invest more time in writing things properly, sharing them properly. Encouraging people yeah, to, exactly, to chime exactly. in. But 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 how how big are, are you at the moment? Just to... uh it's like a drop in the sea compared to you guys. Two hundred, but but you know, uh, doubled within a year, so it feels uh it feels huge for us. Yeah, but you need to be prepared for the growth as well. Yeah, so, sure. So it's growing fast, just growing fast. Start thinking. <laughs> um uh, so, so you know, looking at the at that journey now, imagine you would do everything from scratch. So, what have you learned in terms of if if our listeners are going through the same journey, modernizing their Hadoop and uh, leftovers from on prem, and now sort of are all in in AWS? What have you have done differently now that would have saved you some time or headache uh, that you know today? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, like boring standard things, but I, I think I would. Not necessarily focus more on on testing and documentation, but on uh, strictness to on on the get go. I think this is something that 
like it always bites you in the tail when when you uh, when you end up taking decisions that like hey we can do this a bit faster if we cut a bit down on on the strictness that we want to have and and I think doing uh, going forward with more strictness of like we, this is how we expect data to be produced and like this is exactly how how things should work. Uh, as opposed to like, let's try to solve this local problem for now, and later we will implement some kind of strictness. That's uh, that's a very tough transition to make. So I think that's what what I would change. So try to be stricter from the start, and maybe like the way you would handle the exceptions, because you will always have someone like breathing down your neck and force you force you to take some shortcuts. Uh, I, I would probably have had some kind of exception process and just gather like the poor technical decisions that were made with a clear ambition to move faster. Um, because I, I think that would be helpful not to actually solve those cases, but to get like a, uh, an overview of like what we need to learn for, for the, the good future cases. Uh, so that would be what I would change, I think. So, you know, for, for Klarna, um, you know, you, you're doing a lot with architecture today. When was the point in time where, you know, Architect, architects for the data world became a full-time job, became something uh, people decided to, you know, we need architects, uh, not people to do this sort of as a side job. That's a good question. I think it was uh, probably, must have been like four years ago or something. And uh, at that time, we, we actually had, uh, uh, at the time it was a product manager who stepped into the first architecture role. And I think that's, uh, uh, I mean, I, I thought it was a bit weird uh, then and, and there because I, again, like titles and how do you think about it? Uh, but now it, it makes a lot of sense to me. I think, uh, like I come from a data development background uh, entirely uh, and, uh, for me, I, I realize the type of things I need to adapt and, and pick up. It's a lot of actual product management because uh, you are actually building a a product, and you need to think of it that way. And uh, um, and uh, and like we've had um, looking at architecture, like the the way we we work. Like I act as the architect of the domain and the actual technological platform. Um, but then looking at, at like how we drive architecture uh, on like data modeling, that's more of like team responsibility in a way as well. And I think that's where that's also an area where it's it's a bit tricky to like find the exact uh, sweet spot for for how to do that. Like how much you should again like centralization versus uh, federation. Like how do you get everyone to to build data models that are consistent with each other without having someone centrally just telling them exactly what to do. And uh, um, yeah, I, I think that's one of the things that uh, is a bit of a challenge. I, I don't think there's any standard solution for, for doing it, but there's surely a need for like uh, uh, having having syncs on, on how to do that type of architecture. And we have some things that come centrally in terms of how you should how you should name your fields or uh, the, the different like country codes is the trivial, funny example, but uh, like it's easy to standardize exactly how you do it. Uh, but then, then it's just a never-ending list of uh, these yeah. different things. Interesting, you know, the the product person moving into the, the data role, like you said, more and more thinking about data uh, as product, which is, by the way, another link back sort of to the data mesh story because you know in their 
the concept of data as product is also heavily included in, in the story. But but it's true. At the end of the day, uh, I think more and more companies are are doing that without noticing. Just as you guys, you know, notice, hey, we're doing something that feels like it's a data mesh. Many companies at the end of the day have realized, you know, unless we treat the data as if it was a product and and understand end users who are, you know, the internal, it could be analysts or whoever, uh, it will definitely make our life easier down the road. And, and it just has picked up like crazy, which is true. What what are the top use cases? Uh, what are the top sort of data use cases, workloads that run today that the company sort of is very reliant on and, and are interesting? So I, I think that's a hard, uh, hard one to answer in the sense that, uh, like, obviously there are processes that are more important and uh, uh, central and uh, and and they they might might have like a, a smaller a smaller scale of what we're doing but be extremely valuable but when you also have the the actual scenario where like almost all the different product development teams are are doing uh, like a b testing of, of their features and, and and so and we and we need follow up and, and like train models for for how we're doing our our decisions uh and i think as a company like every company is doing you know bookkeeping and uh and financial reporting i think as a company we have a more skew towards both the product development and uh and the uh underwriting aspects i think that those are what what sets us apart a bit and uh, it's also partly why uh we, we have like a different uh probably a different load profile from from a lot of other companies i i would predict that other banks are not doing the same type of like large data processing in, in, in the same sense because i if if I look at their web pages, it doesn't quite look like they're doing uh, A/B testing of, of every feature. It looks more like someone thought something very sensible through and then they built it and it's okay. Um, but but for us, it's it's more like to the core of like if if we release this feature in our app, like what will the implication be? And uh, those type of things are really, yeah, I, I think that's the type of data uh, use cases we are an analyst in a team that is working with a specific. Uh, module uh, would want to know like does this work better than uh, this layout if we if we do this little tweak in in like uh, in in this thing will more people realize that they, they need to look at, at this thing and like do we get less people dropping off so directly that Clara in essence is very modern when it comes to everything with data maybe you know not what we're used to seeing in the traditional finance world definitely representative of sort of a, the new age, the, the modern fintech companies where everything has to be data-driven and, and data is entrenched in across the departments in their decisions and how they work. Yeah, yeah I think that every, like there's never a scenario where we take decisions and uh, and it's okay to, to not have any form of data. So like we, we, we really need to back up the company and a lot of these things to make sure that uh, people are not uh, having to do uh, gut-based uh, calls. So I wonder so. for our listeners, try to look up Klarna. I have a sort of a very cool uh, commercial that uh, was viral with the fish. Uh, sort of <laughs> moving down, uh, how do you call it? This uh, A slide, a kid yeah, slide. Yeah. And then smoothly sort of moving across the floor and then the message is uh, just smooth or smooth payments or something like that. Yeah. So I wonder how, uh, you know, how many fish were part of the A-B test, you know, types of fish, maybe a tuna <laughs> and a salmon and there was an A-B test and, and the right fish was selected for the commercial. 
<laughs> Unfortunately, I was not I was not part of that. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, like just uh, I mean, A/B testing is is such a central thing when like the core of what you're doing is just removing friction. And uh, yeah, the fish had no friction. I think that's, that's probably <laughs> probably, that probably part of super part of the message yeah. there. Very yeah. creative uh, piece of commercial. Um, okay. Gunnar, this has been super, super, super interesting. Uh, thank you so much for sharing uh, those stories with us. Uh, had thank a good time. you. And I uh, hope you had a good time as well. So we've launched just a few months ago. Uh, we're growing quite nicely, right? Yes. How many views do we have? Very happy. I think we've got like we're in the thousands, right? Happy, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, not bad. But we want more. Want if more. you like this, Help us spread the love. If you don't like that, spread, you know, vote for replacing for me. me for someone else. Uh, That's fine. And, you know, we promise to try our best to keep bringing You're amazing, you boss. the data people from the most interesting data companies. So subscribe, make our mama proud, yes. help us out. Love you, mom. <laughs>